Hey y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. This is volume 89. That means it's volume Steve Smith. Shout out to Smitty, one of the best Panthers of all time. A guy I've gotten to know over the years. And uh, that dude's a Hall of Famer. One of the reasons that I started the Marty Smith's America podcast in the first place was that I had the opportunity to go do interviews for television with some of the greatest athletes in history. And that's the case this week. I went down after Super Tuesday. I was in Nashville last Tuesday for Kentucky Vanderbilt College Basketball. And then I took a 5 a.m. flight over to Charlotte drove up to Concord, North Carolina, to the FBO up there and hopped on Jimmy Johnson's plane with him to begin a two-day feature shoot for the Daytona 500. And it was fascinating. We discussed things that I did not know about Jimmy. I thought I knew everything about Jimmy. We've been friends for 20 years now. There were some aspects of this interview that really fascinated me and shocked me in some cases, that being... One of the examples is we were discussing insecurity, and most men are insecure. I certainly am in a lot of ways, and it's something that I try to manage every day in my life and and maintain proper perspective about. Why is that insecurity here? What is the onus of that insecurity, and how do I ensure that it's properly placed? You would never imagine that one of the greatest ever on four wheels, which Johnson most certainly is, would have any semblance of insecurity after he started winning so many races at the top of NASCAR in one of the greatest eras of NASCAR and quite probably the most competitive era of NASCAR with guys like Jeff Gordon and Tony Stewart and Kevin Harvick and Dale Earnhardt Jr. All of these just just Hall of Fame talents on the racetrack at the same time. And you'll learn here shortly that Johnson was insecure well into being a champion of the highest level of auto racing in this country. And I just was taken aback in the middle of the interview. And that was something I didn't know about him. Again, our friendship stems nearly two decades now, actually almost exactly two decades now. And we've been through a lot together. We've experienced a lot together. Not only did we engage in a lengthy sit-down interview, which is what you'll hear on the podcast here, but we also spent the next day on Thursday of last week participating in a 40-mile bike ride for our friend Scott Legacy, who puts this ride on every year, and I'll discuss that after the interview, during which I also learned a lot and was reminded of many things, not just about Jimmy, but about myself. So I can't wait for you guys to hear this, but before we get to Jimmy Johnson on the Marty Smith America podcast, I want to remind you guys to check out Stupidity. This week, Hank Azaria hosts another edition of Stu's Your Daddy to find out which father-son combo knows each other better, the Cody's, Greg and Chris, or the Wieners, Bob and Stu Gods. Download and subscribe to Stupidity and the Marty Smith's America podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Hiring is challenging, guys, but there's one place you can go where hiring is, in fact, simple, fast, and smart. And growing businesses connect to qualified candidates every single day. Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a new game artist to grow her education tech company. 
But then she switched to ZipRecruiter, and she saw an immediate difference. You, too, can see an immediate difference by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. And by using ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter candidates, Gretchen found it easier to focus on the best ones, then find the right one. In fact, after posting her job on ZipRecruiter, Gretchen said she was honestly shocked that she found qualified applicants so quickly and hired a new game artist in less than two weeks. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. ZipRecruiter is free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-A-R-T-Y. If I sound a little bit different this week, uh, there's a reason. I'm sitting 22 floors above Earth in San Francisco, California. I left Daytona Beach on race day, the Daytona 500, and flew out to San Francisco because I'm interviewing Brooks Kepka for the Masters and the PGA Championship. So I'm in San Francisco recording the podcast remotely. Travis has been extremely patient with me. I think he's asked me to tape this podcast now for some six consecutive days. Can't wait to see Brooks in just a bit. Arguably the best golfer in the world at this specific moment. Rory McIlroy has overtaken him. Rory is number one in the world, but Brooks is right there on his heels. Uh, speaking of number one in the world and athletic excellence, it's now time for seven-time NASCAR champion Jimmy Johnson on the Marty Smith's America podcast, volume Steve Smith. You're going to love this one, guys. Growing up where you did and how you did, what are the chances that this career is the result? Man, whatever the lowest number you'll give me is. I mean, there's just no way. Southern California, um, where NASCAR was during my you know, time growing up, uh, my background, my means, my parents' means, just, just wasn't going to happen. When you were that little guy on that dirt bike out there in California, how far away did Daytona International Speedway, the Daytona 500, seem? It wasn't even on my radar. I mean, in, in my area, you know, we had the motocross scene, we had off-road racing, we had IndyCar racing, and that was really kind of it. I mean, there was an annual race to, to somewhere in California for NASCAR. When I was older, I went with my dad and checked it out, but it really wasn't on my radar. I would say my grandfather would always come by and we'd watch uh, the Indy 500 or the Daytona 500. But back then on Worldwide of Sports, you know, they'd tune in for like 10 or 15 minutes and then cut away and I would have to watch all the stuff I had zero interest in and then watch a bit of the NASCAR race again. So I might catch a segment or two during the 500 and it was largely because my, my dad and my grandfather were sitting on the couch watching it. What enabled you to stay so driven? I don't have a great answer, so I, I think it's just me. It's just the way I'm wired. We grew up in a working-class family. Mom was a school bus driver, dad a heavy equipment operator. My dad transitioned into motorsports as a mechanic, and it was his passion. It became my passion and my love for competing. The relationships I've built in garage areas and in racing series, it just became my family, and it's just where I wanted to be what I wanted to do. Define that passion. What is your passion for racing? You know, until until starting my own family, it was everything. Um, my identity, uh, just just everything, everything I was about. Things are much different having my own family, and it's it's something that I get to do, 
And I'm very fortunate that my my hobby and passion has turned into a career, and I'm, I'm I recognize that, know how uh, how lucky I am to have that happen. Um, but it's it's something I get to do, and, and not many people get to have a career that uh, provides so much, and uh, you know the, the roller coaster ride I've been on. Think back over that that career and that ride. What moments stand out the most? The success is there. I mean, those moments are high watermarks to look at and to appreciate the journey. But I, I vividly remember my fears and insecurities starting my rookie year. Um, even before that, when I signed with Hendrick, I was under contract for a year, still cutting my teeth in the Saturday show, hadn't won a race, curious if I could do it. The whole world was curious if I could do it. And, uh, and dealing with those moments and then kind of clearing hurdles along the way and validating to myself that I could be out there and I, and I could, I could win a race. That journey was is still ever present in my mind in, in dealing with all those insecurities. What are the keys to longevity uh, in this longevity. business? It's a life skill, right? Like treat others how you want to be treated is, is really the most basic piece of it all. There's a lot of guys who didn't do that and had long careers. Yeah, I guess being true to yourself. I mean, ultimately, if, if you're not that guy, just be yourself. And I think that's what fans see through, you know, can see through quickly if you're not being yourself. And I think being true to yourself is everything. Which championship was the most special? Special, I would uh, struggle with one and seven. But I'm going to go with one. The, uh, the disappointment of the two years before, uh, that mark for me and what it did for me inside of my own, between my own years, inside my head, confidence it gave me, that, that, was, that was the biggest one. To what degree did that first one alleviate, remove some of those insecurities you were discussing a moment ago? I wouldn't say until probably the third. I was really, really what? comfortable in my own shoes. Why? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I won one, huge relief, but for whatever reason, you know, well, I was just one. Can't, can't even win a second one. So when the second one, then the third one, I felt like I was chasing Kale in some way. And in my own head, like in the deepest parts of my own, my own head, until I won my third, I finally took a big deep breath and was like, I can do this. I'm, it just somewhat confuses me, that psychology. Yeah. So I think that, that is a big part of my drive. You asked that question earlier. There's something in that insecure world, of, you know, that headspace that I have and mother, maybe others share an experience that keeps me motivated, keeps that work ethic, you know, there. And I, I won't stop until I know I own something. And, and maybe it's it all roots from that. What insecurities do you have right now after all this success? Uh, the performance side is still there. I mean, you still want to do well. I still feel in my heart that I'm as good as I ever was. I have more experience and more time and knowledge more comfortable in my own shoes today than I've ever been. Um, had a tough year or two. So those insecurities of like, I, I sure as hell don't want to think that I've lost my fastball or I've lost something. And I don't believe I have in my heart. So I'm, I'm looking forward to proving things differently. Uh, some want to say that I have, but you know, there's insecurities that come with all that. What do you say to the people that say you've lost your fastball? I don't really say much. I want to prove it out there. You know, that's, that's ultimately what I want to do. You know, I, I defend myself, of course. Um, because I, I believe in my heart that's not the case. But truth's out there. i got to go figure that, out, figure that out. You have this philosophy this year that you're not chasing anything. Right. In the past, you were chasing eight. That was the entire mantra for the 48 team. Why? What changed? I would say when I went to make my announcement that 2020 is going to be my last year, just the awareness you know, from the mind that I was in, just I recognized that I'm, I'm a little out of character. I've... Uh, I started chasing this eighth championship, and I didn't realize 
you know, this hashtag that I used and kind of our mantra was really, you know, at the root of my decision. I've always grown up racing anything and everything. And I've spent 18, 19 years now in a cup car. I still have desires to race other cars. I want to race around the world, other tracks. But I've just had this thing in my own head where, you know, I've got, I've got to win eight. I need to be the guy that wins eight. And when I decided that I was going to make 2020 my last year, it freed me of that. And then literally as I was explaining that to my, my team, my staff, my group of people, they're like, holy smokes, like the hashtag needs to fall down. We need to have a complete pivot because you've had that realization. And it, I knew it and made the announcement, but then publicly more forward facing, it happened a few months later. What did that do to you psychologically when you did have that shift? Allowed me to say 2020 is my last year. And then as time went on and I lived with it more, the other pieces started to fall. But that moment is when I was like, I've done this. I feel good. I feel accomplished. I want a more balanced life. And here I go. What's the pressure of seven? You said that I've never heard you say that before, that there was actually a bit of pressure to be the guy that got eight. The constant push to be the guy who won more championships than anyone who's ever strapped into a NASCAR stock car. What is that? It is something that I thought I had under control. And it's not that it, it completely destroyed me, but... You know, the competitive spirit is high in any pro athlete, right? So it, it wasn't my daily motivation, but it, it wasn't too far behind it. I mean, it, it was just there. And, and until I identified it and realized it, you know, it, it was there weighing on me for a long time. And, and that's what I hope to continue since I made that announcement in October or whatever it was. That's my goal is to keep that headspace at the end of the year and not let that back in. Uh, that's that's going to be the biggest challenge for me. I mean, that competitive spirit kicks in and who doesn't want to be a standalone with eight champions, you know, eight championships? It's just, it's going to be hard to keep that out. You noted the last couple of years being difficult. What leads you to believe that 2020 could be the year you do get eight? I just, I feel like where we are as a team, two years ago, Chad Knauss and I split after a 17-year you know, relationship and, and teammate scenario and he leading our race team. We accomplished so much and the void left after Chad, you know, went a different direction to crew chief the 24 car, that's not an easy void to fill. I've had to learn a lot about myself. Our team has had to kind of rebuild from the inside out. And over the, you know, the last two years, we, we, Chad and I made our decision. Then now I'm a year removed from working with Chad. And we've just had enough time to get through that and build the right team and have the right locker room to go to the racetrack week in and week out. You know, you were talking about your competitive drive there, and one thing that's impressed me so much in our friendship is how you transition into endurance sports and how you took that competitive drive that you have right here and, and morphed it into that. Why was that important to you to become an endurance sport athlete? It started off as just kind of like a personal goal, bucket list item to, to get really fit and to challenge myself. And when I when I immersed myself in that world, I realized how many parallel paths exist, um, how much I learn about nutrition and hydration, and then ultimately the sharpness in my mind, my senses being heightened, my body feeling like it did. Sure, I was I was in better shape than I needed to be to drive the car, but senses and mind clarity, I mean, you can never have enough of that. And, and it's so required in my job that I just, I just kept pursuing that and, that. and I knew it was making me better in the car. In a lot of ways, Johnson, it created a movement in the garage. When you made that step and it became such a public step, so many guys followed suit. What was that phenomenon in the garage? How did you influence endurance training in the NASCAR garage? 
I think people, you know, we, we had so much success on the track that it just became kind of a monkey see, monkey do thing. Everybody's like, well, Jimmy's doing it. Look at the success he's having. You know, guys, drivers, you know, team owners are saying, get to work. Crew chiefs are saying, hey, you know what Jimmy's doing right now? If you want to beat him, this is what you got to do. So I think that started the movement. But at the same time, um, I, I enjoy endurance sports because I'm competitive with myself there, and I don't care to be competitive with others. And I was able to help people figure out how to get into cycling, how to get into running, swimming, work with these guys, spend time together, create a community. Because we're together all the time. And back here in a fenced-off area is where every driver sleeps and every car owner sleeps in their motorhome. And we were such a, a distant community. And cycling has literally brought crew chiefs and drivers and team members together. Uh, we typically have a Saturday, our Saturday afternoons open to uh, to do whatever, and now there's 40 to 60 bikes rolling out of that track, um, going off on cool rides in these areas. So I think when the when the community saw there was more to it, and friendship started to build, it just took off. And I mean, it's it's amazing to see the difference it's made in the garage. We'll get back to Jimmy in just a moment, but before we hear the rest of his perspective, which is just amazing, I want to remind you guys this though before we get back to Jimmy. If you don't know your numbers, you just don't know your business. The problem growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is this hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another system for sales, another for inventory, on and on. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources. And you know what that does? It hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide. Seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash marty. That's netsuite.com slash marty to download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits, netsuite.com slash marty. Ironically, I'm interviewing Brooks Kepka later today at Oracle Park. Now, back to Jimmy Johnson. For everything that you accomplished in NASCAR, one of the most impressive to me is that you actually got Dale Earnhardt Jr. for a brief blip in time to become a cyclist and actually care about fitness. Yeah. Why did you care? And you were on his ass. I mean, you were prodding him to make that a priority in his life. Yeah. Why? That was the last piece he was missing. I mean, he... He was so focused and was, was so into his notes, his sim driving, all these other aspects to it that I knew, I knew that piece was the only thing missing. And I knew that the community created within cycling was one that he would enjoy. And when he was looking at a bike and the gear required to ride the bike, he's like, I'm out. Not, not doing it. But once I was able to get him on a ride and show him the community and how much fun we have on these Saturday afternoons, the mental departure from just how busy our, our racing schedule is, uh, he was in. And I, I knew if I could get him to see that, he'd be in. What did the Boston Marathon teach you about you? I don't think I had a massive moment teaching me about me. I, I realized running the marathon when I wasn't going to hit the time that I set off to hit, 
that I just need to enjoy where I'm at and be present. And I got into an amazing argument with myself from like mile 13 to 15. And I chewed my own ass <laughs> to be present. And that, that's probably the biggest takeaway I have from that. I mean, all the other stuff you get, you know, you got to commit to it and it's tedious and it's mentally tough, physically tough. But the argument I had between mile 13 and 15 was everything. One of the greatest and most difficult parts of fatherhood is just that, being present. When you're a full-time driver out here with a 38-race schedule, every day you have sponsorship commitments, you have team commitments, you have meetings. What's the challenge of being a present father and husband? It's huge, and it's just like any working parent. Um, Truthfully, that is why 2020 is going to be my last year. I I want to be more present. Um, I just, it's very difficult to be present with such a, a tedious work schedule, so time consuming. And I, you know, I've lived, I'm 44 now, I've been racing professionally almost 30 years, and I've, I've really spent 30 years just worrying about me. And it's more than just me and my family. Uh, inside my family dynamic, my wife has her passions, her career. My kids are six and nine. Um, things have been going along great. I mean, Team Johnson is locked down and things are great, but in my heart, and part of what happened in Boston being present, that's really the common theme. You know, I want to be present everywhere. I just, I just don't want this whole, I don't want life just to flash by and I'm standing in a room looking at a bunch of trophies. I mean, it's never been me and I don't want that to be me. We've been friends a really long time and you started playing guitar and you got pretty good at that. You got really good at golf. You became a great endurance athlete. You're arguably the greatest that's ever done it out here. You're an amazing father. You're an amazing husband. You're a great friend. To what degree do you consider yourself a renaissance man, Johnson? I don't think like that, but I'll take it. Yes, I don't know. I've never known you to try anything that you didn't accomplish. That, you know, I, I'm slow to learn. I'm slow to kind of get out of my comfort zone. But when I do, man, I'm, I'm all in. And, and that's kind of been, you know, and you know, you've known me for a long, long time. I'm slow to, to try to, branch out and try something new but once I do and if I like it I'm all in when you look in your crystal ball of what you want to do you're still such a young man what's in there what are some of those bullet points that you'd like to do once you're done doing this there are plenty predictable ones especially for people that know me or have seen interviews driving some cars driving different races different tracks those experiences but I as after I made my announcement in November, I just feel like I need to be open. I don't know what life's going to throw at me. I don't know what opportunities are going to show up. And I don't want to be so focused on having it mapped out, which is typically how I operate, um, that I miss an opportunity to do something really special for me and my family. Uh, so I'm sure I have a, a, a list, but I'm trying to just drag my feet and take my time and, and be open to anything. You're going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, everybody knows that. How do you define your place in NASCAR history? I, I hope to be defined as as uh, the individual I am, the uh, the friend to so many in the garage area. Um, the relationships to me mean far more than the trophies that I've collected. I've had so many people help guide me to where I am today and mentor me. I'm now actively doing that with many young drivers and uh, various friends at different stages of life. Even if they aren't a driver, just dealing with something difficult, I just care. And I, and I hope I'm remembered more for, for being that guy in the garage area than the guy with, with seven championship trophies. You've been asked about legacy forever. Ever. Uh, probably since that third title that removed all that insecurity. 
What do you want your legacy to be? I think one of the good guys. You know, one of the good guys that was able to do it. Um, you know, there there are heroes in sports that accomplish it in a lot of different ways. And uh, you know, I just hope my my story of, of being one of the good guys with those trophies uh, shines through. When you look at people that helped you along the way, who were some of those people that made this happen for you? The one everybody will know right away is Jeff Gordon. I mean, without a doubt, Rick Hendrick. You know, as I kind of back up from this experience at the cup level, and I get into the folks at Chevrolet that believed in me when I was 15, signed me to a contract, and I've been with them ever since. Team owners along the way in there, other drivers. As I climbed the ladder, I really didn't spend any time in one particular division or vehicle. And I was so thankful that there was a champion, championship-level driver ahead of me that took me under his wing and, and guided me and helped me out. So uh, I, I could bore you for hours. There's a long list of people that, that helped if you look back at 2020, once you get done, what's a successful season? Winning, being in the Final Four. Now, to back up and try to apply what I want to accomplish in 2020, enjoy it with my family, enjoy it with my friends, enjoy it with the fans, and, and let in, what, 19 years of, of racing at this top level and the accolades that come with that, let that in. There's a lot of people who will watch this who've seen you, they know your name, they know what you do, but they have no idea who you are. Who is Jimmy Johnson? The, uh, I'm just a kid from El Cajon, California that, that chased his dream, and uh, doors opened at the right time and, and became a uh, seven-time, hopefully eight-time NASCAR champion. But uh, I, I really feel like I have lived the American dream came from lower blue-collar, lower middle-class upbringing and have been able to chase this thing all the way to, to superstar. As I stated at the top of the podcast, I learned a lot about Johnson in this interview, and I felt like I knew everything already. When he told me that he was insecure as a racer in NASCAR until he won his third championship, I was completely taken aback. There aren't very many drivers who've even won three. So for someone that has had historic success, seven championships, 83 wins and counting, that struck me that even the greatest of the greatest ever still feel a level of concern about their positioning until a certain place. Johnson's told me more times than I can count, and it's one reason I didn't ask the question in the interview, what his true goals were or what little Jimmy would have said about this. He only wanted to win one race in NASCAR, just one. And he won in his 10th start at Fontana, California, his home track in Southern California. Jimmy is from San Diego, greater San Diego. He's actually from a little tiny town called El Cajon. Blue collar, uh, you heard him say there, dad was a heavy machine operator, mom was a school bus driver, and Jimmy Johnson is the American dream. And I want you guys to know this about that man. I wrote this a few years ago after he won his final championship, that he is one of the most unique people that I've ever met because he is universally revered and respected as a competitor, and he is universally adored as a human being. He is the kindest person. His 
influence on young racers and and the sport itself and the way that he is completely selfless in offering his perspective to people. He's never jealous. He's never concerned about all of those things that consume a lot of us. He's an amazing husband. He's an amazing father. He's the best friend to every friend. And with someone that has a schedule that is completely packed and and determined on January 1st, all the way through December 31st, he makes time for you when you need it. When you really need him, he's there. And I know that because that's been my situation in the past. It was awesome to catch up with him. He believes in his heart that after a couple of down years that were absolutely subpar by his standards with his new crew chief, Cliff Daniels, that they have the opportunity to win races and win the championship in 2020 and that he can go out a champion and the only man ever to win eight titles at the highest level of NASCAR. Whether or not that happens, we'll have to wait and see. But he really believes that they have the manpower, the expertise, the equipment, and certainly he still has the talent and the hunger to do that. So it was just awesome to spend that time with him. And not only did we do that sit down, but we also did a bike ride that Scott Legacy, a mutual friend of ours who himself spent a lot of time driving in NASCAR. Scott is an avid cyclist, just like Jimmy is, just like I am, and put together a 40-mile awareness ride six years ago to raise that awareness for cycling safety. And this year, after five years of asking me to do it, I decided that I needed to do it, and we were able to use that as a platform for the feature we did on, on Jimmy Johnson. We rode around the racetrack at Daytona, which was an invigorating experience. I mean, to be up on the racetrack that I grew up idolizing the NASCAR drivers who were on it. I love cycling. It's it's hard to describe if you're not a cyclist what it is. It's not just a bunch of dudes prancing around in spandex and looking funny with helmets on their heads. It's the, one of the most freeing feelings that I could ever begin to try to articulate. And it's a unique camaraderie in the cycling community. That group that rode in Scott's event was an amazing group of people. It was 60 people. There were pros in that field. There were folks who maybe were on a bike for the first time who just wanted to support Scott, who were members of the NASCAR community. And I also want to say thank you to Steve, who owns the hub cycling in uh, right around Daytona. I forget exact what, exactly what town. They might be in Daytona, but it's right near the racetrack, three or four or five miles from Daytona International Speedway. Steve owns a, a cycling company. And my dear friend, John Quinn, who is an executive at Scott Bikes, I didn't have a bike. And so those guys got together and arranged for me to have an amazingly technologically advanced bike that had electronic shifters. And I mean, that thing was a Ferrari and it just made my experience during Scott's ride. Amazing. I got to fellowship during that ride with Jimmy, with NASCAR president, Steve Phelps, with Scott legacy, whom I mentioned a few moments ago with Eric Almarola, who drives the Smithfield Ford for Tony Stewart in the cup series. 
and we got to catch up about our families and catch up about our lives. And those guys were inquisitive about everything that I have going on. And it's just an amazing community. And I hope that those of you out here who are members of the, of the cycling community, I hope I was able to describe well what it is. It's not about being out there and, and being Lance Armstrong or being George Hincappy. It's about being out there and feeling the wind in your face and the freedom of the road. That's, you know, you hear guys on Harleys all the time talking about that. It's this amazing sensation, especially when you're in a group like that, that is like-minded. And I just love it. And I'm, I'm so glad that that's a part of my life. And I was reminded well about that community, uh, last Thursday during Scott's ride. So thank you so much to Scott. And one of the people that was on the ride that I was, I mean, I was so stoked to meet this guy was Sheriff Chitwood, Sheriff Mike Chitwood down in Volusia County in Florida. The ride this year was dedicated to one of Sheriff Chitwood's senior deputies, a gentleman named Frank Schofield, who was hit and killed by a vehicle while riding his bike in New Smyrna Beach. And we stopped at the intersection where Frank was killed. And there's now a memorial in his honor there. His wife came and all of us signed a yellow cycling jersey and it was framed. And Scott gifted that framed jersey with all of our signatures to Frank's widow in an amazingly emotional scene. All the deputies were there. Sheriff Chitwood offered his words to Frank's widow and about Frank to the assemblage. And it was an amazing moment. And it's just, it was a great day for me because of the reminder of living where your feet are. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. I certainly did. Thank you so much to Jimmy for giving us so much time and insight. Travis is on the other line, but uh, because I'm remote today, we don't really have the opportunity to banter back and forth. He always does such a great job. As a reminder, I'm going to go ahead and start beating this drum to you guys. Travis and I, once again, are going to produce the Masters podcast coming up in April for the folks at Augusta National. It is the honor of our lives to have that opportunity to partner with Augusta National Golf Club, the Masters Tournament, and to be a voice of that amazing, amazing week. I I mean, I just... I can't even begin to rationalize that I'm able to say that sentence. Neither can he. Travis and I just can't believe it, and we're so grateful for that opportunity. So coming up in April, we are so excited and can't wait for you guys to hear Masters Podcast 2.0. Remember to go listen to Stupidity and check out Mina Kimes and Sarah Spain's podcast. I'm so grateful that you guys are loyal to Marty Smith's America. Thank you to our law enforcement officials. Again, I was reminded of that on that ride. What a special group of people our law enforcement officials are in communities all over this country. Our policemen and women, firemen, first responders. And I'm so grateful, as always, for the United States military. I watched Platoon last night. I got to San Francisco late from Daytona, 12-hour travel day. And I laid down in the bed and turned on the TV and Platoon was on. I had not watched that movie in a long time. And I, I, I just was completely taken aback with what I was seeing. And 
it was yet another reminder to me that we live in the greatest country and a lot of people have really given a lot and sacrificed everything in some cases in order for us to live in a free land. So thank you to our military. If you guys see somebody in a restaurant or in the airport walking down the sidewalk that has on a hat that says Vietnam veteran, Korean War veteran, World War II veteran, Desert Storm veteran, stop them, shake their hand, say thank you. That is Marty Smith's America, volume Steve Smith. And I appreciate y'all for listening so much. Have an amazing week. And we'll try to do better next time. See y'all next time around.